Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. That's October 16th, 2022. And today we're looking at a rather long reading, Genesis 8, 1 through 9, 17, the aftermath of the flood. So last time we looked at the flood itself, how the Lord saw that every intention of man's heart was evil. And he declared that because of that sin, he was saddened and he would act in judgment and and, uh, wipe out life on earth through a worldwide flood. However, he saved Noah and his family, three sons and their wives, so eight people in all, by telling Noah to build an ark. And this wasn't because Noah had earned it, but because Noah was blameless in God's eyes by faith. Remember, since Genesis chapter 3, God had promised that the Savior was coming. And and through the the pre-flood patriarchs, Adam and Seth and Enoch and others, that promise had been repeated to all who would hear. And in fact, during Noah's lifetime, many of these men live so long that they're all alive at the same time as, as Noah is, and most of them die off shortly before the flood. So at the time of the flood, only Noah and his family are left, and Noah is called a blameless man because he believes in the promise of the Messiah who's coming. And so the Lord has Noah build an ark. Noah trusts that command and trusts in God's promises. He builds the ark. They load up all of the, um, the animals, as well as food for all the animals. And then um, the Lord shuts the door, and the rest of the, uh, the world is devastated by this worldwide flood. But the flood doesn't last forever. And our reading starts out with this good news, that God remembers his people because God remembers Noah. So, we start in 8 verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, tops of the mountains were seen. So the earth starts to dry out when the flood ends, but I want to draw your attention to a little bit of, of language here, and that is that um, the earth begins to dry out when God makes a wind blow over the earth and over those waters. The, uh, the, the word here for wind in Hebrew is ruach. It's the same word as the word for spirit. So at the original creation, in Genesis chapter 1, we find the spirit hovering over the waters. And then as part of creation, God gathers the seas, gathers the water together, and, and draws the land out of the sea so there's, there's, there's solid ground on earth. 
Here, after the flood, um, we have the same word. We have, we have a wind here that blows upon the water, and the water starts to subside, and gradually, once again, land emerges from below the water. Now, the wind here is obviously wind. It's not the spirit, but I think the language is chosen carefully to say, you know, the first time around you had a ruach and water and land appeared, and this time around you've got a ruach and water, and then land appears. I think God is, is, is drawing a parallel here in his word between the first creation and this, this renewal of creation after the flood. Now, going on to verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. So kind of three threads to, to pull at here in, in this section of the text, verses 6 through 12 of chapter 8. Uh, first off, numbers start to get special meanings here. Um, Noah waits for 40 days before he opens the window. And, and, and of course, as time goes on in the Bible, 40 gets this symbolic meaning of, of um, a time of affliction where God is at work to deliver his people. So for instance, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years, and and it's not a pleasant place to be, but God is at work to get get them to the promised land. Jesus fasts and is tempted by the devil for 40 days in the New Testament, um, and that is unpleasant, but he is at work to save us. Here, Noah waits for 40 days. As the earth dries out, I can't imagine that it's pleasant, but God is at work inside and outside the ark to deliver his people. We also have the number seven here. After the, uh, after the first dove comes back, Noah waits seven days before he sends out the, the dove again. And remember, seven is, is a, um, becomes a symbolic number of, of God's work with the earth. God is symbolized by three. The earth is symbolized by four. And so in the seven days of creation, God made everything. And, and now Noah waits seven days, and that seven should have us thinking, and so God is at work recreating, renewing everything after the flood. We've got birds here. Noah first sends out the raven, and the raven flies away, and the raven doesn't come back. Ravens are scavengers. And, and, and this is a, a note here that the raven has found, has found stuff to eat. Carcasses of drowned things is likely what the raven is eating. So, so the fact that the raven doesn't come back is a statement to know that, that there's hope. There's, there's a chance that the world is going to dry out here, but it's still not time to leave the ark. Noah sets um, a dove 
free from the ark and the dove flies around a bit um, and afterwards she, uh, she comes back. There's no place for doves yet in, in this world. Um, apparently doves don't like high altitudes like mountain peaks. Apparently they don't like a whole lot of mud. And so the dove just comes back to Noah. He waits seven days and sends out the dove again, and this time the dove comes back with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its mouth. Now, this is a sign that that there is, again, more drying out of the earth. Creation is being renewed and restored after the flood more. I think it's pretty fascinating that there's already an olive tree that is leafing out for the dove to bring back a sample. That strikes me as, as a miracle. And so now we have in this renewed creation, water gathered or land gathered out of the water and, and, and God has placed a tree there to give to give Noah and his family hope. Now, a dove with an olive branch, these have become universal symbols of peace, and it's all because of this text. And it's not because doves are inherently peaceful, lovely birds. If you watch doves in your backyard sometime, you'll see that they're really kind of jerks. But the reason doves symbolize peace is because God uses them here to show that Noah and his family are at peace with God. But more than that, God uses the dove as a symbol of of the Holy Spirit when Jesus is baptized. Now, the reason the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove when Jesus is baptized with water, giving hope to all of us, the reason the Holy Spirit is a dove there is because there's a dove here in Genesis 8 that symbolizes that Noah and his family have been saved through the waters of the flood and they'll continue to live or we might reverse that and say that the, um, the reason that this is a dove here is because the Holy Spirit will portray himself as a dove when Jesus is baptized. But in both cases, here and at Jesus' baptism, the message is that we have peace with God, we have hope for life because God has saved his people through water. All right, continuing on with verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, uh, this, is, uh, this is the 601st year of Noah's life, by the way, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast Every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Again, this section shadows creation. You've got water, you've got land drawn out of water, then you have plants that are growing, including this olive tree. 
And then uh, onto this creation, onto this dry ground, there are released birds and swarming things and, and animals and, and, and creeping things. And so the, the uh, earth is now inhabited once again with, with living creatures, along with Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. It's the same sequence as in Genesis 1, the first creation, as God renews creation after the flood. Verse 20, we read, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So here God declares that he will not repeat a worldwide devastation until the world comes to an end. And he'll be more explicit in chapter 9 and say, I will never again cover the whole earth with a flood. But here he declares that this this one-time flood is a one-time thing. He's not going to repeat it again. In fact, he promises here stability. He has taught the lesson with the flood, and he's not going to teach that lesson again because everybody can learn from this one-time flood. So from now on, says God, from the flood on, there will be seasons until the end of time reliably. Summer, fall, winter, spring, they'll keep on going. There'll be day and night. People can count on these things. There will be localized disasters, regional disasters, but God promises he will not wipe out all of all life on the earth um, until, the, until the world ends. And he, he uh, raises up his, all of his people on, on the last day. Noah built an altar to the Lord here in these verses, and he offers uh, some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he makes burnt offerings to the Lord. Just a few notes here. Uh, One is that God has specified that there are clean and unclean animals. Noah took seven pairs of clean animals onto the ark. And it might very well be to to provide adequate stock for offerings in the future. These are burnt offerings that Noah makes. And and so he... uh, He offers the entire animal to God. There's nothing left for Noah and his family to eat. And it's interesting that that Noah knows to do all this, even though we don't have the law yet. We don't have Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy to tell about sacrifices and unclean and clean foods. But Abel and Cain were already offering sacrifices to God in in chapter 4 of Genesis. And so the worship of God by sacrifices goes back a long time, and it happens here as well. That moves us then to to chapter 9, verse 1, where we hear, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and subdue it. So God blesses Noah and his sons, and what he does here is really the same thing that that he, he did for Adam back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He gives to Noah and his family, to mankind, dominion over the animals. They are, to, uh, they are to subdue creation, and in doing so, they are to be stewards of all creation. God also notes here that, uh, that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast and, and all animals. I'm glad that was not the case inside the ark. That would have been a tougher voyage than it already was. But now that, that the animals are released, uh, once again, now there will be kind of this adversarial relationship between mankind and animals. And God also gives to Noah and his family every moving thing that lives to be food. He'll tighten this up for Israel later on, but but here, mankind is first given permission by God to eat meat, and God does not restrict it to, to, uh, to clean animals. Clean animals are for sacrifice at this point. No one in his family apparently can eat everything. At least they can eat every kind of meat. They can't, however, God says, consume the blood with the flesh because the blood is life. Um, and, and so God declares that, that, should, that should, the blood should be drained before they eat. Um, many ancient pagan religions held that if you drank the blood of an animal... You uh, added it to your own life because the life of the animal was in the blood, and God wants Noah and his family to have nothing to do with that. Um, now, I'll, I'll go ahead and add here that some have argued that our view of Holy Communion is wrong uh, since we say that Jesus gives us his body and blood, and they argue that, that Jesus can't give us his blood because God has forbidden us to to consume any sort of blood, and so Jesus wouldn't do that. We'll note that this prohibition against consuming blood is an Old Testament law. It is not renewed in the New Testament, although the apostles do advise it for the good of the church in, I think, Acts chapter 15, but it's not a law given by God. And we also note that God here declares that blood is life. Jesus has come to give us life. And if blood is life, then it only makes sense that Jesus would give us his blood so that we might have life in him. 
I've digressed a bit from our parallel to, to creation, but here God gives to Noah and his family dominion over the earth, repeats that gift that he first gave to Noah and his, I'm sorry, to Adam and his descendants in the first place. And he also says to Noah and to his sons, be fruitful and multiply. He said the same thing to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 verse 28. Now he says it to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9, verse 1. Interestingly, God will say, be fruitful and multiply to people one more time. And that's in Genesis 35, verse 11. And there he says it to Jacob when he renames Jacob Israel and makes Jacob the father of his chosen people. So each time God says, be fruitful and multiply, he directs that blessing to believers that those who are born might be alive in body and mind and soul. Now, of course, everyone who is born, their life, their birth, that is a gift of God with his blessing. But uh, but God desires that all uh, would be alive in soul as well as in body. Finally, God says here that uh, since he first created mankind in his image, even though Adam and Eve lost that for us in Genesis 3. But since God first created uh, mankind in his image, human life is, is, is special. It's, it's, it's sacred, we might say. God sets it apart. Therefore, he says that he will require a reckoning from any beast, any animal that kills a human being, um, which is an interesting thing that God calls animals to account for doing harm to man. And and then God also declares, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So God here establishes capital punishment for the crime of murder. He says that if, if one human being kills another human being, he hasn't just killed someone, he has robbed that person of God's gift of life. And so God declares here that, that uh, he, uh, he will require, he will call that person to reckoning, and he calls upon other human beings to exercise that reckoning and even to, to execute a murderer if it warrants. Um, here in Genesis chapter 9. And then in verse 7, he repeats, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. All right, home stretch here. Genesis 9, verse 8, we read, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." So this is where God fills us in a little bit more on his promise from uh, verse 21, where he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
there he made that declaration. Now he clarifies that so we know more of what he means and that he will not destroy all of life on the earth by a flood as he has this time. Um, mankind hopefully has learned its lesson and now he says that flood will not happen again. Um, God declares, I establish my covenant with you. This is a unilateral covenant. God doesn't say, hey, if you guys do your part and behave, I won't wipe you out with a flood again. It's a one-sided covenant. God promises and says, whatever happens from here on out, and he knows what's going to happen from here on out, whatever happens from here on out, I will not destroy the world with a flood. So this covenant is God's unilateral promise that, that he will not do this again. And this covenant is not just with mankind, it's with every living creature. When Adam and Eve sinned, the curse of sin fell upon all creation. Animals were sentenced to death as well as human beings. Now, when God makes this covenant, makes this promise, all living beings, animals included, they, they also benefit from, from God's promise. So there will not be a universal flood again, says God in, in verses 8 through 11. And then he gives them a sign that they can see. We read in verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So God declares that, that from here on out, the rainbow is a sign of his promise. His promise that he will not cover the earth with a universal flood to destroy all living things again. Now, um, God says whenever he sees that, he will remember his promise. Doesn't mean that he forgets every time there's not a rainbow. It means every time that, uh, that you see a rainbow, you can think, hey, that reminds me that God remembers his promise not to destroy everything with a worldwide flood. Now, there's some question here. Is this the first time anybody sees a rainbow? Were the rainbows before the flood? Or, or is this the first one? So is God saying, hey, you've seen rainbows in the past. Now there'll be a sign of my promise. Or is he saying, hey, here's something new. It's a rainbow. And this will be a sign of my promise to you. And, and the, the answer to this question is, we, we simply don't know. We, uh, we have this description of, of creation where there's water above the heavens and water below the heavens. Um, at the time of the flood, a ton of water covers the earth and a lot of things change. So, for instance, before the flood, people are living 600, 700, 800 years. Methuselah almost makes it to 1,000 years. After the flood, people 
maybe make it to 100, 110 years old, and then they die. Something has changed in the world that, that limits life expectancy drastically. Likewise, we don't know what has changed in the atmosphere. Were there rainbows before the flood? Were there clouds before the flood? We simply don't know how much has changed in, in the world, in the atmosphere, between before the flood and after. And really, the question for you and me doesn't matter. What matters is, is that when, when you and I see a rainbow in the sky, we can say, hey, look, that reminds me that God remembers his promise to be merciful to us. What shall we draw from this lesson? First off, again, remember that, that the flood is, is a symbol of baptism. We talked about this last week, that we even have this, this flood prayer in, uh, in the order for holy baptism here, where we pray that as God wiped out the wicked, drowned the wicked in the flood, but spared Noah and, and um, his family, eight souls in all. So we pray that God would wash away the wicked, old, sinful nature from the one who is baptized and, and, and spare the new, the new creation, the, the new saint who is now cleansed and forgiven. So the flood is a, uh, is a sign of baptism in that it washes away wickedness and, 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 and uh, spares the righteous. We also note that God does this one-time thing as an act of judgment. And, and while he promises not to do it again, hopefully mankind looks back at the flood and says, you know what, we really should uh, repent and trust in God's promises. Mankind, of course, fails to do that. Um, this is still a, a sin-plagued world. And in fact, we have, a, we have an interesting progression here that I've kind of brought out already, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this. We had creation, where we start with the Spirit hovering over the waters, God draws out land, then plants, then animals, then mankind, then dominion over the earth, and the blessing be fruitful and multiply, and now we have, once again, kind of a renewal of creation, creation 2.0, where we start with water and the wind blowing over the water, and then land appears out of the waters, and then there are plants, and there are animals, and people, and once again, the command to have dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply, and, and, and those blessings continue to this day, and we look forward to the last day, the day of the new heaven and the new earth of total recreation when, when we are now in a new heaven and a new earth that has no sin, where our intentions are not evil anymore. So in this progression, we have creation, we have this renewal of creation at the flood, and then we have a new creation on the last day. And that also mirrors your life as a, as, as a Christian. First, you are created, you are born, and then you are renewed or recreated by water, the water of holy baptism. And now you are one of God's righteous people for Jesus' sake, even though you still have evil intentions in your heart, you confess those and you're forgiven. And you look forward to the day of resurrection when you are raised up a totally new creation 
without sin and with life forever. So in, in the broad scheme of the world, we see creation, flood, renewal or recreation of this creation, and then a totally new creation, a new earth on the last day. In your life, you have your creation and your birth. Then you have your renewal or recreation by water and baptism. And you look forward to the last day when you are raised up, still God's holy child and totally free from sin. So here we have a a, a story of of God's mercy and God's judgment from Genesis chapters 8 and 9, as well as um, a message of hope for you and me, that God who created us has redeemed us in baptism, and he will deliver us to everlasting life. So, that's a quick look at Genesis chapters 8 and 9, the aftermath of the flood. God's blessings on you as you meditate on this text further or as you teach it to others. And until next time, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. God's peace.